The scripture reading for this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45 is on page 49 of your pew Bible. The reason we're reading Genesis 45 is because in our text in, in Mark, we'll see that Jesus reveals himself as both Lord and brother. And that's exactly what we have in Genesis 45. Joseph being the type of Christ is both Lord and brother. And we'll see how he treats his own brothers. We'll read from verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in me, in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. 
To his father, he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as, as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they said to them, him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now let's turn to our text, which is Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. It's on page 1066, 1066 of your pew Bible. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who had sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all know that Jesus Christ is central in our life, or he should be central in our life. But is that enough? Do you know how you ought to relate to him? 
when you look at the text today, today's text, you'll see that there are many different ways of relating to Jesus, and many of them are wrong. There's only one correct way of relating to him. And this is shown through different groups in our passage. First, we have the crowd. They're, they're gathering around Jesus to be healed by Jesus. They see Jesus as someone like a physician who can heal them. Second, we have a group of people who are saying that he is out of his mind. Third, the scribes are saying that he is possessed by Beelzebul. Fourth, we have Jesus' biological family, mother and brothers, coming to him. And fifth, there are those who are following him and sitting around him. So which group do you think represents your relationship to Jesus? I'm asking, who is Jesus to you? This is an essential question, and this is also the theme of the sermon. Who is Jesus to you? And we will consider two answers that's given to us in this text. First, Lord. Second, brother. To you, is Jesus a lunatic or a liar or Lord? You might be wondering why only those options, lunatic, liar, or Lord, why so extreme? Can we not have some moderate options? The answer is not really. C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus Christ was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was who he, he said he was. And that's exactly what we see in our text, isn't it? Verse 21, they were saying he is out of his mind, lunatic. Verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And verse 30, he has an unclean, unclean spirit. That is, he's lying. He's lying when he preaches about the kingdom of God. He's not for God's kingdom. He's not God's servant. He's a servant of Satan. He is a liar. These are honest responses that we have in our text. The people that we see in our text actually heard what Jesus said, and they wrestled with it. And that's why we are getting these kind of responses. So what did Jesus say exactly for people to react like this? You'll hear once in a while that people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was just a moral teacher. And if that was the case, why would he be accused of being crazy, of being insane? Do you think they would have done so if Jesus was just claiming to be some kind of rabbi with a fresh approach to the Old Testament? Or if Jesus was saying that he was a prophet just casting out demons, would people call him or accuse him, accuse him of being insane? No. But Jesus was claiming far more than that. In the text, you can already get a glimpse of that. In verses 34 to 35, 34 to 35, see what he does. First, he looks at his disciples who are sitting around him. 
And then he implies, and then he says that these are my mothers and mother and brother because they are doing God's will. So what he's saying is that listening to him, sitting around him and listening to him is God's will. That's how important Jesus thinks he is. It's so important that it is God's will that people follow him and listen to him. And people must have wondered, who do you think you are? Are you that important? Jesus made grand claims. But even that is not one of the grandest claims that he made. In the previous chapter, in, in chapter 2, you might know well that it's a parable, not a parable, the, the episode with the paralytic. To the paralytic, he said, your sins are forgiven. And do you remember how the scribes react to that statement? They think to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right. Think about it. Why does Jesus forgive the sins of the paralytic? Did the paralytic sin against Jesus? Most likely he has never seen Jesus. So how could he have sinned against Jesus? Jesus forgiving his sins shows that indeed the paralytic sinned against Jesus. The paralytic was supposed to walk righteously before Jesus. And that's because Jesus is God and Jesus is the judge. So you could say that the paralytic sinned against Jesus in the sense of Psalm 51. And there David confesses to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So when Jesus forgives, forgives the sins of the paralytic, he's implying that whenever the paralytic sinned, he was primarily sinning against Jesus. That's why Jesus forgives his sins. That's true. But in the, first, in the eyes of the first century Jews, Jesus was claiming to be God when he seemed to be a normal human being, breathing and walking, sleeping, flesh and blood human being. He looks like a human being, but he claims to be God. He acts like he is God. That's why he's being accused as being a lunatic or a liar. C.S. Lewis was insightful when he narrowed down the options, these options to only three, lunatic, liar, and Lord. And this matters. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that's what I want to address this morning. Perhaps you are new to the church, or perhaps you've never really paid attention to the message of the Bible. But let me tell you that it's impossible to just respect Jesus without acknowledging him as God and Lord. And that's because Jesus claimed to be God. If he claims to be God, yet when he's not God, how could you respect anything else that he says? That's the point C.S. Lewis is making. And what does merely or just respecting Jesus make you anyway? It places you at the same camp as the Muslims 
and the atheists. The Muslims respect Jesus. They think that Jesus was a prophet. They think that the things he said was worth listening to. They even think that Jesus ascended and that he is coming back. They respect Jesus. On the other hand, even some atheists respected Jesus. They are drawn to his teachings of self-sacrifice and love. So if you just respect Jesus as a moral teacher, you're not really a Christian. Perhaps you think that way because you've never actually paid attention to what Jesus said. He wasn't just a wise rabbi or a guru or something of that sort. So what's your assessment? Is Jesus out of his mind? Or is he lying? Or is he telling the truth? If you don't think that he was a lunatic or that he was a liar, there's only one option. He is who he says he is. He is your Lord and Savior. And there's overwhelming evidence that he died and he rose again, came back to life. But unfortunately, we don't have time to get into that this morning. But know that he is God and Lord and Savior. And that leads to only one acceptable response. Brothers and sisters, repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do this morning. And this text brings this out in an extremely pointed way. There's something really striking about this passage. When Jesus talks about his disciples, those who are sitting around him, being his mother and his brothers and sisters, there Jesus implies that Mary, his own mother, his biological mother, is not carrying out God's will. Now, it is those who are sitting around Jesus who is doing God's will, and Mary is not included in that. And that begs the question, what exactly is God's will? What are those sitting around Jesus doing correctly? When you hear of doing God's will, what comes to mind? And would you admit something active like obeying the Ten Commandments? Right? We're talking about doing God's will, after all. And so you would think that you will find people busy doing things in our passage. But you, but you, what you get instead in verse 40, 34 is this, those who sat around him. Those who sit around Jesus is doing God's will. To use the illustration of Martha and Mary, they weren't busy serving him food or setting up tents so that he could comfortably teach or anything like that. They weren't even evangelizing at this point of history. They were just sitting around Jesus and listening to him. And that's what Jesus describes as doing God's will. That makes you wonder what exactly were, were they listening to? And to know that, we must go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. There you get a summary of the message, the proclamation of Jesus. There Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So those who were sitting around Jesus were those who heard this proclamation, those who repented and believed in the gospel. And what does the gospel reveal? That people, people are sinners in need of a savior. That people must believe in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins to be saved. And Jesus implies that Mary has not done this, at least at not this point of history. This was indeed the case. It might be hard to believe, but we know from the book of John, the Gospel of John, that his, Jesus' own brothers, biological brothers, did not believe in Jesus. Reading John 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And so it was for, the, for Mary. Because Mary didn't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, Mary wasn't obeying God's will. And now that's a convicting message. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Think of her love for Jesus. Isn't it reasonable to think that she cared for her dear child, her firstborn son, Jesus? You don't have to guess because we know that he did. We, we have given a record in Luke that she, indeed she did. When Jesus was left behind in the temple, we read that Mary was greatly distressed. She was greatly distressed because she cared for Jesus. And how would the mother, a mother, feel as she hears that the religious leaders, the elites of their time was against, against her son, hostile towards her son? Don't you think that Mary would have been concerned and would have been praying for Jesus? And I think we also get a glimpse of her care in our passage. We read that in verse 20, the crowd gathered around Jesus so much so that they could not even eat. So Mary came to seize him, to pull him away from such unsustainable circumstances. How can a mother not think of her son? Mary loved Jesus as her son. But, Jesus says to his mother, you are not carrying out the will of God. He's saying that Mary too is a sinner in need of a savior. She needs her sins to be forgiven too. Mary too has to believe and had to believe in Jesus as her Lord and Savior, not just as her son, not just love her, love him as her son, but as her Savior. So Jesus called Mary to repentance and faith with these words, who is my mother? Whoever does the will of God is my mother. Now, if that's the case with Mary, how much more is that the case for you? I assume that there might be some among you who haven't come to terms with who Jesus is. You've grown up in a Christian home. You go to Christian school. You come to church. And so you know enough that you should respect Jesus in our circles. So you act res respectfully. But that's not enough. That's not what church is about. And there are others who are busy serving, involved with committees, Involved with volunteering, which is all great, 
But there is something that has to come first. So brothers and sisters, are you listening to the words of Jesus? Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Do you see that you need Jesus because you are a sinner by nature? So repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Receive him in faith. This afternoon when you recite the Apostles' Creed, don't just follow along absent-mindedly. Engage your mind, engage your heart, and proclaim, I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is my Lord. Acknowledge what he has done. Perhaps do so in prayer. Lord Jesus, you bought me with your blood. You freed me from all the powers of Satan. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. I belong to you. Use me as your instrument. This passage is calling you to treat him as he is, as your Lord and Savior. Yet, you shouldn't think of him just in the terms of earthly lords or an earthly authority figure. Authority figures in this world, world are often distant and difficult, you might say even intimidating and scary. Sometimes you get the feeling that they have more important things to do than to worry about what we have to say or spend time with you. But that's not how Jesus is. And you can see how Jesus cares for you in verse 34 in the way he addresses you. He addresses you as brother, sister, and mother. I know this is about you who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus calls you brother, and this brings us to the second point. Jesus is our brother. So now we see that Jesus is both Lord and a brother. That's a complex and rich relationship. What is that? What is that like exactly? And thankfully, there is a type of Christ in the Old Testament who is both Lord and brother to God's people, and that's Joseph. Joseph was Lord. He was the most powerful person in Egypt, only after Pharaoh. He even says that he is the father of Pharaoh. He was made to be the father of Pharaoh. So he is Lord. Yet, at the same time, he is a brother to God's people. Joseph's brothers. It's interesting because when Joseph's brothers come to Joseph, they bow down before him and call him themselves servants. Yet, Joseph is a brother to them. Now, was Joseph indifferent to his brothers just because he was Lord over them? No, he wasn't. I admit that in the, there was an initial testing period when he tested them and treated him harshly. But when we read that when he could no longer control himself, he broke down and revealed himself and said to his brothers, please come closer. We also read that he embraced Benjamin and wept with joy. And that wasn't just how he felt towards his brothers in the beginning, but he continued to feel that way towards them. He wanted his brothers to live close to him. So he asked them to settle in Egypt, in Goshen, 
near him. He wanted to take care of them and even their children and their children's children. He understood that that was his calling. He even said that God sent him before them so that he might provide for them. And that's the same with Jesus. God sent your brother, Jesus Christ, to provide for you and to keep you alive. It's true that Jesus is highly exalted, seated at the right hand of God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. But that doesn't mean that he is too busy for you or that he is too important for you. The reason God gave him power and resources is to keep you alive so that he may keep you alive by providing for you. In Hebrews 2 verse 11, Jesus tells you through his spirit that he is not ashamed to call you brothers. And in fact, he delights in doing so. Think about how great his love for his brothers and sisters is. To make a comparison, Joseph was quite affectionate towards Benjamin, wasn't he? He embraced him and he wept. But you can be assured that Jesus loves you more than Joseph loves his brothers. Because Joseph is a shadow and Jesus is the fulfillment. Joseph shows you a fleeting glimpse of how Jesus, how much Jesus loves you. And Jesus' love for you is evident on the cross. He suffered far more than Joseph, even the eternal wrath of God. So more than Joseph, Jesus wants you to come closer to him. And indeed, he himself is close to you. He said that he will always be with you. It's the last parting words before you ascended into heaven. He's close to you. He's always with you because you are his brother and his sister. This is a great privilege. Notice that this also makes you God's son because Jesus is God's son. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, one family member is missing. The commentators point out that Jesus does not mention father because there's only one father. And through Jesus, everyone has become God's children. This is a great privilege. Think of how great this is. For some reason, if you don't feel good about yourself, perhaps you think that you are insignificant, perhaps you think you're a nobody, know that the most resourceful, the most powerful being in heaven and on earth considers you as his brother and sister. He calls you brother and sister. And that makes you the most connected, most royal, most powerful person on this earth. You are the most important person in Niagara, along with your fellow Christians. You are the most important person at work. And think about the practical, practical benefits. As Joseph gave his brothers food and the best land, Goshen, so Christ provides for you. In Romans 8, we read that we have become co-heirs with Jesus, fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus, as the firstborn among the brothers, shares everything with them. 
We can think of many things, but most importantly, eternal life. He gives you eternal life. He shares his eternal life with you. And he gives you inheritance as well. All this earth, everything, the new heavens and the new earth will be yours. Or think about what will happen to your character. You'll begin to have a family resemblance with Jesus. Just as brothers, sometimes sisters, look alike and they act alike, you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. There are so many amazing things that come with being a brother or a sister of Jesus. And Jesus just gives this all to us. Isn't Jesus the most gracious? Think about it. Joseph treated his brothers well. You can say partly because they are actually his biological brothers. But what does Jesus owe these people? What does the word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who is God, owe these lowly people that we read about in chapter 3 of Mark? Nothing. Everything was created through Jesus. And these people, they have done nothing for Jesus. And even on a human level, think of how insignificant these people are. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishermen. Levi was a tax collector, the most detestable person among Jews. And yet, the Lord of heaven and earth calls him, calls them his brother and sister. And so it is with you. Jesus, the Son of God, most graciously calls you brother and sister. So don't take this privilege lightly. Cherish it. Jesus is both your Lord and your brother. He's both powerful and loving, both exalted and near. And it's no wonder that he's portrayed as the exalted, exalted lamb to whom every creature prays, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Is worthy of such praise. So, Let's lift up our hearts in singing and join in this heavenly choir. Amen. Let's come before